So we are looking at our time in First Peter over these months as God's grace at work. Hopefully this morning you'll get a better understanding of why that is, but it's really going to take all of First Peter to really uh, tease that out as much as needs be. But I'll, I'll visit a little bit at the end of, of our time in God's Word, some different places that, that grace pops up kind of in unusual ways that we don't usually expect it to be described or to be, to pop, to be uh, popping up in, in an explanation of our relationship with God. You ever uh, heard of someone uh, describing their experience as feeling like a stranger in a strange land? That's how the recipients of this letter were described. Uh, maybe you've taken a trip to a foreign country. Maybe you've gone on a foreign missions trip where you've, where you've had a goal in mind and, 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 and any kind of coordination with people from another culture, it, it can be a challenge. I've experienced that in different mission endeavors and things. Uh, one of my favorite stories, I may have told this up here before, but it's good enough to, to risk that. I know I've shared it with uh, a number of you just in conversations. A friend of uh, mine and Kelly's, is, her name's Megan Cox, and she was training to be a missionary when she was a college student. She went on to marry uh, one of uh, Jeff and my friend Matt, Matt Cox, uh, from the same floor that we were on at Moody, and they went on to be missionaries with Missions Aviation Fellowship. But Megan shared an experience with us where uh, before she was married, when she was still in college, she went on a short-term missions trip to someplace in Africa, and they were ministering pretty deep in the bush, and, and they were invited to some people's homes in order to have a meal with them. And so they, when they went to this meal, they, they found out pretty fast that the soup was intestine soup. And she was having a hard time with it, just the taste of it and stuff, but one of her teammates said, don't eat the soup. And she was like, why? He said, they didn't clean it out very well. So, I mean, this is like really a cross-cultural experience for her at this point. She was feeling like a stranger in a strange land. And so what they started doing was they started just kind of putting the parts, you know, kind of spooning it out and kind of putting it in their hand. And they were putting it in their pockets. And so here's Megan. She's describing herself walking back to the compound that they were living at uh, in, in the dark, in like lion country, uh, walking this um, trail. And she's so frustrated with herself. She's like, I don't know how God's ever going to make me into a missionary. And here I am throwing, you know, intestines out along this path. We're probably going to get eaten by a lion. And she was just so frustrated with the whole experience. Well, what's customary in that culture was for them to invite that family over to have a meal with them. And so they did so and they, they thought, you know, we, we should kind of prepare for them a typical meal that we would have in America. You know, this cross, give them the cross-cultural experience. So they made something safe like sandwiches. And so they're eating the sandwiches together and they're all seemingly enjoying it and enjoying the conversation and all. And, and the people were like, well, so, thank you so much. And after they left... Megan was greatly encouraged that it goes both ways. Because as they were cleaning up, they found pieces of lunch meat stuffed into the cushions of the chairs that the people had been sitting in. We could feel like strangers in a strange land just being in a different culture. Let me ask you something. What if you became a stranger in the land that you grew up in and lived in? 
many um, people that have been living by biblical values and by of a conservative nature, we have, are t- starting to kind of feel that way in our home country, in America, as things become more progressive. But, but what if things didn't really change in your culture around you, but you became a stranger very quickly? What if you became a stranger instantly? And as time went on, other people seemed to notice. They started asking, what happened to Frank? It's like he's from a different planet. I always choose to use, try to choose names that aren't represented here, right? It's like he's, he's from a different planet all of a sudden. I mean, what, what would that be like for you to always sudden, all of a sudden be a stranger in a strange land in the place that you grew up in? Peter's letters that we have in Scripture are written to Christians, Christians who became instant exiles. And instant exiles, even though they didn't change their address. So let's look at the first two verses of 1 Peter 1 this morning as we open up 1 Peter together. Where Peter is writing, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are, who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So as a whole, with 1 Peter, we're looking at an understanding God's grace at work throughout uh, the Christian's walk with him. This morning we're looking at God's grace at work in our exile. Because just in the same way that Peter's original readers of his letter were living in exile, we too, if you know Christ as your Savior, you are in exile on this earth. What does it mean to be in exile? Okay, we, we can understand first that the person is living in what is not truly their home. Secondly, it has a sense of it being involuntary, outside of the person's control, right? If somebody's exiled from their country to not be able to return. But also, when you refer to someone as an exile, it's different than being an immigrant. Because when someone's an immigrant, they've immigrated and they are making their home in that new place. That's not the expectation when someone is in exile. They ache, maybe even, and yearn for their homeland, of which they're not living in. We see that this letter comes from, from Peter to these exiles. And it comes just as much to us as we'll see, as we are living in exile. It kind of, it's, I'm, I'm just as much a uh, spectator of how God leads us into different parts of God's word as you are. I might get it just a little bit early, but, but it was really neat for me for him to lead us into studying God's transformation of Peter after Easter onward. And then uh, he'd been laying First Peter on my heart for quite a while, and it was kind of like, bad. that's where we should go next. And so we, if you might remember when we studied the transformation of, of Simon to Cephas 
which mean his name is Petros in the Greek, which we call him Peter. That originally he was boisterous. In fact, before he was even one of Jesus' disciples, he told Jesus, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. When he was following Jesus, and Jesus informed that, that he would be going to Jerusalem, and that the rulers there would crucify him, Peter's the one that, that stood up to him and said, that is never going to happen to you, Lord. But yet we saw through Peter's transformation, especially after his being filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, that his greatest weakness, his outspokenness, actually became the greatest tool for God to use for God's glory, a strength for God's gospel mission. Now, Paul was understood to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Okay, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Peter is understood as being the apostle to the Jews. And you see that throughout um, the book of Acts. And it was significant, if you remember from Acts 10, that it was Peter that God used when he wanted to show the Jewish church that Gentiles were welcomed as a part of the church, that they did not have to become Jews before they could become Christians. That was like a, a mind-blowing thing for the Jewish Christians. And so remember, it was, it was Peter that God used to share the gospel with Cornelius and all these other Gentiles in Cornelius' home. And Peter was there witnessing the Holy Spirit falling on them just as he had fallen on the Jews at Pentecost. And it was that witness that God made to Peter that, yes, Gentiles can become Christians without having to become Jews first. And it was Peter that took that message back to the church in Jerusalem and gave testimony of that. And it was significant that this was coming from Peter, the apostle to the Jews. Well, now Peter is living in Rome. He talks about this symbolically toward the end of the letter when he says, those in Babylon greet you. He's speaking symbolically about Rome. And, and we'll, we'll cover that when we get to it. But he's seeing in Rome precursors. Precursors of a great tribulation, a great persecution under the, the rule of Emperor Nero. And, and if you pick up the study, and either for your personal study or for a small group, you'll see on the back of it is a couple of paragraphs from the InterVarsity Press Bible Background Commentary describing the persecution of Christians under Emperor Nero. And that started, I believe, in A.D. 64. Let me just consult. Yep, A.D. 64 that started. Just with, this was just a couple of years after Peter writes this letter. But Peter, I believe, is seeing the precursors of this persecution welling up in the city of Rome where he's living. And this is what causes him, I believe, to write in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's interesting how Peter blesses these, these Gentile believers in this, these regions of Asia Minor, which we'll see on a map here, he blesses them, these readers that are mostly Gentile Christians, he blesses them by using terms that include them in God's blessing of his privileged people. 
He uses terms that were used to describe the Jewish people, to describe Israel. That's what he does when he calls them exiles of the dispersion. The dispersion was the term used to describe the Jews that were living away from Judea. They, They were dispersed abroad. And they, in the same way, they, they weren't considered to having immigrated because Judea was still their home and Jerusalem and, and their, that region of Israel. But Peter blesses these Gentile readers by calling them exiles of the dispersion. He describes them in other terms uh, throughout his letter, attributing to the, that were, had been originally attributed to the Jews. He calls them as like stones. That God is building one on another individually that he's building into his holy temple. That's a very special Jewish thing. He calls them a holy priesthood. A term that was used to describe Israel in the Old Testament. He calls them a people for God's own possession. He calls us these things. A people for God's own possession. That we are included in God's privileged people as long with the Jews in his church. Well, you can see on a map up here uh, the, the regions that Peter lists off. Peter would have been uh, up in the top left-hand corner is Rome in Italy. So the, the uh, far east side of the Mediterranean Sea would have been where, where Israel is there. And so that, that glob of land up above there is modern-day Turkey, ancient Asia Minor. And so those regions there would have been where these Gentile churches would have sprung up. And they would have sprung up through witness coming from Jews at the day of Pentecost or Jewish believers coming from the persecution that started around Acts 7. So back to our passage here. He describes them not just as exiles, but elect. Elect exiles. This also is a term used for Israel as God's chosen people. In fact, when the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when it was translated prior to the New Testament times, it uses this term for Israel, this same Greek term. You know, the Hebrews, they didn't have a nationwide conference call to decide, okay, are we going to sign up with this God, you know, and be his people? They weren't even a people yet. But they were chosen to be God's people. That's what God tells Abraham. He tells Abraham, I'm going to make you into a people, the, the Hebrew people, and that people is going to be my people. I am electing them. I am choosing them. And Peter uses the same term for the elect exiles. So I want to challenge you, first of all, from our passage here, to embrace your stranger status. Embrace your status as a stranger. The the, the people that Peter was writing to, they might have felt it a little bit more than we we do, or they might have, were going to be feeling it a little bit more than we do. It's different when you grow up in a country whose, whose founding is based on biblical principles, and as we see that our country changing, we feel it a little bit more and more. But just like the original readers of this letter, I challenge you to embrace your stranger status in America. The NIV translates exiles as strangers. It always refers to a temporary resident in a foreign place. 
Paul reminds us in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is not on this earth. Our citizenship, if we know Christ as our savior, is ultimately not in America. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we are strangers in a strange land. Jesus recognized our exile status and prayed that we would be protected. In John 17, where he asks the Father, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. As exiles, we have a strong sense that I don't belong where I am residing. I belong somewhere greater. I belong somewhere more significant than this. Remember this. These people that Peter is writing to, they didn't move into this new region. They weren't exiles because they they moved in there. They came to Christ as their Savior, and they became exiles. They became strangers where they were already living We'll see this in 1 Peter 4.4 when he describes uh, the the pressure that they feel to be involved with their surroundings, to, to their neighbors, with their family members. He says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. This is what they were feeling. They grew up there, but they became strangers where they grew up. And they became strangers because God chose them to be strangers. You know, when I was a youth pastor in the Chicago area, uh, we had youth group on Monday nights. And I married a girl from Wisconsin, so obviously I'm a Packer fan. I I saw the light. But, um, you know, so here I am in the Chicago area. We do youth group on, on Monday nights. And every so often, at least... You know, at that time, at least like once a year, it seemed like the Packers were playing the Bears on Monday night. And so, you know, not by my uh, doing, the students were like, we got to watch the Bears game. So we developed this tradition where when that would happen, we would watch the Bears game at youth group when they would play the Packers on Monday night. I was in, in, in some ways, I was a stranger. Kelly and I were exiles. Believe me, it was a lot easier. Uh, We felt a little, you know, Felt a little more awkward about it by the end of the game because Packers are usually winning. But of these, I, the, these, these readers, of us as strangers in a strange land, one writer says, we who are saved are providentially placed by God in the midst of the unsaved, living in Satan's territory, to win those among whom we have been placed to the Lord Jesus. We're like secret agents. We are elect exiles. This term elect is interesting. I already said like it's the same term used when, when in the Greek Old Testament it calls Israel my chosen. It's using this word. It's a, it, the, I don't like bringing out Greek words unless they have significance. I find this to be significant. The term is eklektois. Eklektois. Do you hear the English word in that? Eclectic. Eclectic. 
Um, yeah. So it means those picked out from among a number of others. I'm just sitting here wondering if that's a different English word than I was thinking. But anyways, we're an eclectic group, right? God's kind of specific. God's kind of a, um, maybe a little odd with his choosing. And we look at each other. But it's by God's choice. His eclectic choice. It's the same term used in Ephesians 1, which translates chosen. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in, the, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us, there's the term, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before God. You know, we're seeing uh, the gospel, we're seeing the salvation experience here from like 20,000 feet. We're seeing it from God's perspective. In fact, bigger than that, we're seeing it from the eternal God's perspective. Okay, the perspective of the eternal God. And if the infinite God doesn't blow our finite minds every now and then, we're not really thinking of, of who he is. Okay, so we're looking at salvation from an eternal perspective of an, an eternal God, and he's describing that we were chosen, that we were always chosen. I don't really understand that all that well. Now, from our perspective... We look back on the fact that we were never going to be able to have a relationship with God on our own because of our sin. But God's solution was to lay our sin on his perfect sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And that what, it looks, what that looks like in real time is for us to look at that and say, I need my sin taken care of. And Jesus paid it all. And Jesus offers me his righteousness in exchange. God, I want what Jesus did to count for me. And I want your righteousness to be accounted, to, to be attributed to my account so that I can have a relationship with you. That's what it looks like in real time. But what we're given here is God's perspective. Imagine, if you will, um, a king who has a kingdom, and, and that kingdom doesn't have an address. It doesn't have a physical address, okay? But there are members of his kingdom scattered throughout other kingdoms. And they become members of his kingdom by him choosing them to be in his kingdom. And, and it's an honor and it's a privilege, but it can get awkward really fast, right? It's like, why are you following that king? When you live in this kingdom, he asked me to follow him. He, he showed up. It, 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 it's worth it. I'll live in this kingdom. I'll live in, this, this, this un, I'll live in the skeptic of my neighbors. I'll live with my family who's saying, I hope you're not becoming one of those people. I hope you're not becoming one of those fanatics. But it's worth it even though there's no physical kingdom right now. But I'm looking toward one. That's what it's like. We're challenged to be careful as we wait 
to be united with our true homeland. We're challenged in, in 1 Peter 1.17, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Be careful, he's saying. We're reminded that it's, there's actually a war going on, and it's a war for our souls. In chapter 2, verse 11, we're told, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. God's saying, don't lose your godly distinction, your godly purpose, your higher focus. Even if you're the only one on your street, even if you're the only one in your family, The big picture is this, guys. It's about Jesus. But it's about Jesus and you in relationship. It's about Jesus and you on his gospel mission. That's what it's about. Even as we live as strangers in a strange land. And I challenge you to embrace your stranger status as an ongoing work of the eternal God. As I mentioned, we are getting it here from the eternal God's perspective on all of this. And and just as Peter says that all of this is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Notice the involvement of the whole Trinity. And the involvement, their involvement in all of time. You see, God's, God the Father being involved in, his, in the past with his foreknowledge. You see, God the Holy Spirit being involved in the present with sanctification. You see, God the Son being involved now and into the future with us being called to obedience to him. This is, this is mind-blowing. Okay? God in three persons, holy trinity, in another time, yet now, yet in the future, we're getting our relationship with God from his perspective. When it says it's the foreknowledge of God the Father, to foreknow can refer to not just God knowing a fact, but to his knowing people in a personal, loving, and fatherly way. We may, we may be a stranger, from, uh, go from stranger to friend with a neighbor by, by walking up and saying, hey, how do you do? You know, this is my name. You know, they'll want to get together sometime, spending time with them. But we don't go from stranger to friend with, with God by our own sinful instinct. God's foreknowledge is such that he has always known us and has had a plan to set us apart for himself. As Ephesians talks about, since before the foundation of the world. I know this is mind-blowing, but this is from the eternal God's perspective here, folks. The statement in verse 2 is explaining, let me help you understand this, when he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, this is explaining all of the whole situation of verse 1. 
Okay? There's not one thing that, that it's attributed to there. It's there being, there being elect exiles and where they live and what circumstance they're living in, their status, their location, their situation. God was intimately acquainted and involved with the, the arrangement and design of it all. And what purpose was it working for them? Or what was it work in them at that time but the sanctification of the Holy Spirit? The sanctification means to be set apart for a greater purpose, set apart for something sacred. Wayne Grudem says, Peter is saying that his readers, their whole existence, chosen exiles, is being lived in the realm of the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the unseen, unheard gravity of God's whole, I'm sorry, unheard activity of God's Holy Spirit surrounds them almost like a spiritual atmosphere in which they live and breathe, turning every circumstance, every sorrow, every hardship into a tool for his patient, sanctifying work. Imagine, if you will, that you, you got a tour of a factory, okay? This is one of those factories where like, like, there's no people down on the floor. It's just robotic arms moving everything, moving everywhere and all that. And as you're touring this factory, you come up to a guy, and he's up, he's up on the catwalk there, and he's looking down, and he's got a remote control, and he's just kind of moving it. And you're like, oh, so which one are you controlling? And he's like, all of them. Wow. Okay. Um, and then you find out he's also controlling the ones that were happening, everything that was going on 10 years ago. He's also at that moment controlling everything that's going on 10 years from now. That's an eternal moment that he would have to be living in. That's what it means for God to be eternal. That's what it means for God to be bringing his loving power and saving work from an eternal perspective. I know, it's mind-blowing. But only God can be that. Only God can do that. And God has purpose of it for it all in the present. And we can trust him. This is why we're told in Romans 8.28. 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16-17, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We're from James 1, 2-4, you're probably familiar with. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God uses everything to shape his children. But to shape them into what? Their call to obedience to Jesus Christ. We'll see this fact in 1 Peter 4.14 where he says, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And he says later in verse 20, Because Christ suffered in the same way, leaving you an example so that you might follow 
See, the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work is involved in our being made more into the image of Christ. Called to obedience, for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, anytime sprinkling with blood was used in the Old Testament, in temple worship, it was symbolic of the purifying that needs to take place for a person or an object to be acceptable to God. One writer says, sprinkling blood in the Old Testament was a visible reminder to God and to his people people, that a life had been given, a sacrifice had been paid. And we see in 1 Peter 1.19 that the blood that was given was the precious blood of Christ without blemish or spot. And that sprinkling with his blood, I believe, represents the ongoing forgiveness. As we are being shaped more and more into the image of Christ, to the obedience of Jesus Christ, there is ongoing cleansing, ongoing forgiveness. Imagine if you were drafted. Okay, that could have good connotations or bad connotations. You could get drafted into a war. You could get drafted into a, onto an NBA team, right? Uh, in both of those situations, the person being drafted is being chosen from among the majority, and they become a part of the minority that are drafted. They're chosen for that purpose, okay? And th- there's a plan for them. There's a process for them. To get involved, somebody drafted into a war, into the military for a war, they're going to get training, they're going to boot camp, there's going to be, here's your boots, here's your uniform, get going. And there's also an ideal, a conformity to the ideal soldier, a conformity to the ideal player on that team. And if you have a relationship with God through Christ, you've been drafted into his kingdom. You've been chosen to be a stranger in a strange land. He's got a plan. He's got a process. It's described here as the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. He has has an ideal. It's described here as obedience to Jesus Christ, conformity to His Son. Just, it's said almost in same terms in in Romans 8.29. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined that they might become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Peter will make this same connection between suffering and Christ-likeness in 1 Peter 2, 20-21. It says, If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. May God give us the faith and grace to see that this is a good thing, being conformed to the sufferings of Christ. May we be receptive to what Peter prays believers might receive from God. And so I lastly challenge you here this morning, be responsive to God's ongoing grace. We're going to see throughout this letter that in ways that are peculiar to us, in ways that we don't really anticipate seeing grace at work, that God's grace is at work 
Is your heart receptive? Is your heart responsive? We can understand people under persecution and trials needing peace. And I think for that reason, peace isn't really talked about all that much from this point forward in Peter's letter. But what is talked about very often is God's grace. And I think it's because they needed to see, they needed a new understanding that what God was doing was grace at work. We tend to think that grace only is only in terms of our initial forgiveness, our initial being issued into a relationship with God through Christ, or that, that grace just is involved when we screw up. Like, oh, I'm just glad there's grace. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to need to go get some grace for that because I screwed up. We're going to see in 1 Peter that grace is always at work where God is at work because grace is undeserved blessing. Undeserved blessing. It's interesting that we just looked at the four soils. The four soils which taught us, the parable of the four soils which taught us that that what's most important in responding to God's word is the condition of our hearts. Do I have a hardened heart? Do I have a shallow heart? Do I have a, a heart full of weeds? That's what defines whether or not we are going to respond to God's truth in the way that we should respond. And so when it comes to challenge you to be responsive to God's grace, and part of that is is seeing, you know what, if God's getting glory, if Christ went through this, if this is part of being conformed to the image of Christ, I'm in. That takes a heart that's responsive to God's grace. And I challenge you to be asking yourself that. A relationship with God in His grace is all-inclusive. I don't know, I've never been on one of these all-inclusive resorts or all-inclusive cruise trips or something like that, but what, what, what my understanding of it is that you show up and you check in and you don't have to pay for anything beyond there. My, my chintzy nature, that's what you know, stands out to me, right? You know, all the food is included, all the travel is included, all the activities are included. In the same way, God's grace is there and is it, it is, at, is at work at all times, all situations, all ways. It's God's ongoing grace. God's grace is at work. And let me just hop and skip through, not physically, don't worry. I've been skip through Peter's letter here to show you some of these instances that he describes as, this is grace, people. He actually summarizes his whole letter In chapter 5, verse 12, where he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. What's the true grace of God? Everything that he writes in this letter. He's saying this is all the grace of God, people. In the areas that we're a little bit more accustomed to, like in chapter 1, verse 10, He's concerning, uh, he talks about the, Old Te- the content of Old Testament prophecy of the gospel that will be revealed through Christ. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. 
We, we are a little bit more accustomed to that. The gospel, the foretelling of the gospel being described as grace that was coming, grace that would be ours. He also talks about grace as being the content of what our future hope is, the future hope that we have. And we're a little bit more comfortable and normalized. This is normal for us too as well. Because it's the, the, the tail end of what it means to have a relationship with God. In verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Therefore prepare your minds for action, and be, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're a little bit more accustomed to that, the idea that you know, we'll be able to have full um, uh, Christ-presence relationship with God. But then he describes our suffering as being a grace thing. Such an odd terms here in 1 Peter 2, 19 through 20. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You know, we, somebody might say, well, that was a God thing. Okay, they're meaning it's just like God was involved in all of it. He's saying that this is a grace thing. God's grace is involved in all of it when you suffer for, for Christ and endure. That's the kind of grace we're not used to hearing about. Grace is always at work. It's at work in, in helping us to, to understand how to live with one another when we're in a marriage relationship, which we'll see in 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's also used to describe spiritual gifts in chapter 4, verse 10. As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Grace is at work in our spiritual giftedness. Grace is at work as we share spiritual gifts with one another. And lastly, and I'll just share with you from chapter 5, verse 10. We see grace defining God's character and defining our hope. It says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Here's the deal, folks. What we kind of have an understanding of from this survey over these places where grace is used in First Peter. When he says, The God of all grace... He's saying the God of all this stuff, all this experience of being strangers in a strange land, all of his walking with you through that, all of that suffering for his purpose, for what he's doing in you, the God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I believe that we're going to learn from 1 Peter just what that means. That, the God, that God is the God of all grace. And His grace is always at work. Let's bow our heads.